Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, I'm very happy to welcome back Danny Orbach to discuss his new book, Fugitives, A History of Nazi Mercenaries During the Cold War. Danny, hello, and welcome back to the show. Hi, Craig. Nice to be here. It's great to have you back. Um, <clears throat> we had we had a great time discussing your last book. Um, so, Danny, for those who may not listen to your first interview, um, can you please give us just a couple-minute introduction about yourself? So I'm a military historian from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the Asian Studies and the History Department. And this is proper because scholarly speaking, I have two hats. One of them is my hat as a military historian. And here I'm a generalist. Of course, I specialize on Germany and Japan, but I work a lot on Middle East as well. I'm interested in military history, especially intelligence history, in a more, I would say, a general, even theoretical, but kind of global way. My second head in the Asian Studies department, which is less relevant to this talk, I'm also a historian of modern Japan. And often these two fields kind of intersect, but more appropriate to this channel, I'm very, very interested in modern Germany. So thematically, uh, as uh, the audience may remember from the discussion of my first book, The Plots Against Hitler, uh, I'm interested in coup d'etats and in uh, underground conspiratorial networks. Uh, uh, That was also the subject of my second book, on this country, the rebellious army of Imperial Japan, which dealt uh, with undergrounds, military undergrounds in the Japanese army and the way they led Japan to the Second World War. That was my thesis back then. And then I began to be interested in military adventurism, that is in freelance adventures which are fighting or helping to fight wars which are not their own, a subject which now become, unfortunately, a very relevant again because of the war in Ukraine. And from there, I became interested in the history of intelligence and espionage, which is kind of the subject of the current book. And I just end it by saying that kind of the new project I'm working on is more on the field of kind of war atrocities. So that's another interest. So just to say that I'm dealing with a lot of diverse subjects. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And it's great that you mentioned some of your other books, because I I think there's a lot of crossover with our our listeners and be interested in in some of the other things you've written about. So you, you, you touched on it a little bit. Um, how you arrived at this this current book? Because um, it, it's such a it's a fascinating topic, and it, it is it is truly global. And we'll get into that as we go through the interview. But so how how did you arrive at I'm going to work I'm going to write a book about sort of these Nazi mercenaries? Um, so what led you down that road? <laughs> Actually, it's funny, even a little bit of a bizarre story. It began with my interest in military adventures. So. 
I was looking for people in the post-war, I kind of became very interested in the Cold War and the post-war, who were kind of freelancer intelligence agents. What I later call in the book intelligence entrepreneurs or intelligence peddlers. And the subject I kind of hit on, on the beginning, is Nazi hunters. Because I thought, you know, here are kind of independent agents who are doing intelligence work, maybe cooperating with national intelligence agencies, but being no part of any intelligence agency, kind of intelligence adventures. And I thought in the beginning, and the, the, the readers who know the subject will smile now, uh, you will understand in a minute why, I fought work on Nazi hunters and were a fight against Odessa. Odessa, not a city in Ukraine, but this mythical organization that helped Nazis to escape after the war. Organization der ehemalige SS-Angehörige, the organization of a former SS agents. I didn't know much about the subject. And as I dig in in the beginning, and that's why the listeners know about the subject may smile, I discovered that Odessa was a myth, that actually no such organization existed. And also about the Nazi hunters that I was interested in in the beginning, kind of I discovered that many of them did not tell the truth in many cases. They kind of overblew their importance. And they were not as interesting as I believed in the beginning. So it's very frustrating for a scholar, and I think, Craig, you, you may know that, or many other people in the audience, that you begin to study something that you think is very interesting, and then you discover it's a myth, and there is nothing to study. It actually, it happened to me when I walk on the plots against Hitler that I thought I discovered a military, anti-Nazi military rebellion in the German army in Yugoslavia. And I read the source in Serbo-Croatian that described the story, and then it ended with the words, based on my conclusion, the story is, an end, is a baseless myth. But, <laughs> so it happens to all of us. But then I, <laughs> I kind of accidentally discovered that some of the Nazi fugitives actually were freelancers in intelligence, in weapon peddling, uh, many stories told about these Nazi mercenaries in the Cold War, especially in the Middle East, were untrue. We may speak about it later. But the true story was even more interesting than the myths. So I kind of discovered accidentally a a true story, which I didn't really want to investigate, but that ended up being the subject of the book. Of the book. Yeah, no, and this this is such a fascinating story. And I think it puts a lot of different... um, Little things that people may know like a little bit about puts it all together um, in a nice package. And I'm really excited to dig into the sort of the three main parts of of your book. Um, But before we do that, I just kind of want to ask, you kind of ascribe motivations to these guys and they fall into sort of like three distinct categories, right? Um, And I'm sure there's overlap and I'm, and you know, like for each individual, there's probably like a one, two, three, four, five, six you know, levels of motivation. But can you just sort of give us a general sense of the subjects of this book and what motivates them? Um, And then we'll get into more specifics. Sure. So one of my, one of the main arguments of this book, and it may be a controversial argument with even more controversial actual ramifications, is that it was not possible to be a Nazi after 1945. 
many of people may kind of raise eyebrows now, but I'll explain it. The ideology of Hitler and the entire package called National Socialism failed so miserably in 1945 that it was not possible for anybody, even self-declared neo-Nazis, to defend the entire package. So that, because the defeat was so disastrous, in the records I, I read of neo-Nazi activists and mercenaries or neo-Nazi parties, it was, for example, usually recognized that Hitler made a big mistake because in the end everybody fought against Germany. Germany fought too many enemies. That was kind of agreed. And in the reality, the reality of the Cold War was so different than the reality of the Third Reich that self-declared Nazis had to make choices which are unimaginable in the old Nazi world. So virtually everybody had to choose one component of what I called Hitler's rubbish heap, the element which was most important for this person and preserve it while jettisoning other elements. For example, uh, the people who chose to serve the West in the Cold War believed that anti-communism was the most important element they wanted to keep from Nazi ideology, but we had to give up on opposition to democracy. And in a way, even on anti-Semitism, not as private feelings maybe, but as public ideology or as a principle that guides the state. Some people believed aversion to democracy is more important and they chose to serve the Soviet Union, thus giving up on anti-communism. Some people hated both democracy and communism in the same way they wanted to preserve both elements, but the, the prize of it was uh, keeping Germany neutral in the Cold War, and neutral in the 1950s meant disarmed. So the prize was giving up on another element of uh, wartime national socialism, which is militarism, armed militarism and uh, a wish to be a world power. And those for whom anti-Semitism was the most important component to preserve and maybe served Arab countries in order to fight Israel, like Alois Brunner in Damascus, whom I focus on, had to serve Arab states and kind of adopt a kind of post-colonialist ideology and thus giving up on racism against people of color while preserving anti-Semitism. So everybody had to give up on something. But there were people, and this is maybe the last category, if I understood you right, kind of the categories you mentioned, who were completely disillusioned from not only Nazi ideology, but virtually all ideologies. They were bitter and bittered. Their country was gone as far as they were concerned. They didn't really identify with either, with either neither West or East Germany. And they served as mercenaries and their only goal was to milk money and maybe adventures in any possible way and kind of cheat everybody in the Cold War as intelligence peddlers or arms traffickers or intelligence entrepreneurs, and this is a group I really focus on. Yeah, and, and we'll get to some of these groups as we as we go on. I, I think that's a very helpful breakdown because um, in the book, the one of the things that strikes you is that how many different characters there are and, and, and just all the different things that they've got going on in their in their mind and that they're thinking about. Um, so let, let's get start with the first section, um, more specific. So um, who is Reinhard Galen and why is he so important to your story? 
Reinhard Gehlen, General Reinhard Gehlen, was a senior intelligence analyst in Nazi Germany. For most of the war, he led a FHO, a Fremdehere Ost, Foreign Armies East, which was an intelligence agency. Of course, I'm simplifying things, which was most of all responsible for analyzing intelligence collected in the Eastern Front on the Soviet Union. Gehlen uh, was never an ideological Nazi, yet he was a loyal German officer during the war, never cooperated, for example, with the German resistance movement, which was the subject of my first book. But kind of in the end of 43, 44, he understood that Germany will not win the war. And he organized for himself a, some kind of a policy insurance. It was a plan to take the a secret archive of the Wehrmacht, of a FHO, on the Soviet Union and give it to the Americans after they win in exchange for preserving Galen's status as a spy chief, kind of continuing his career in the post-war and a gradually came to believe it, it could be the intelligence leader of the new Germany that will rise after the defeat, regardless of its character. So uh, when the war was about to end, uh, Gellin virtually uh, deserted from the army along with his colleagues. He took the secret archive and buried it in the Bavarian Alps. Uh, I won't tell the entire story, but in the end, the Americans uh, kind of uh, ate this bait. Why? Because Gellin understood more than other people, how little the Americans know on the Soviet Union. So it was kind of clear to many people in Nazi Germany, including Hitler himself, by the way, that the relations between the Soviets and the Americans will soar sooner or later. But what Hitler and Goebbels or such like people never understood was that the only thing the Americans and the Soviets agreed about is that the Nazi regime should be eliminated. So there was no hope for the Nazi regime whatsoever. But Gellin understood that for his life after the Nazi regime, he was not kind of a, a first-grade leader. The regime was not important for him. What was important was his own career. And he understood that American intelligence knows very little on the Soviet Union, actually, if there was a ban on collecting intelligence on the Soviet Union in the U.S. during the war. And no matter what will happen, if it will be a war between the Soviets or the Americans, or even a feud for kind of a cold war, the Americans will need intelligence of the Soviets, no matter what happens. And he was the person to deliver, because who knows more about the Soviets than a German intelligence officer who just fought the Soviets a few seconds ago. So uh, that's how it worked. And from then on, Gellin kind of established a group, a loosely called the Gellin or Org, Gellin Organization, Gellin Organization, which worked for the Americans as kind of a private mercenary group, working for the U.S. Army, then for the CIA, since uh, 1947, 1948. And Gellin was not a good intelligence professional. He was never an outstanding intelligence officer, neither in the war nor after the war. But what he was very good at is intelligence politics. 
he always knew how to downplay his rival and kind of eliminate them, not in violent ways, but politically, shoving them out of the way to be the worst choice ever. Kind of the least worst choice for the Americans. So the Americans tended to say, that's what we have, he is here, we have nobody else. After West Germany became independent, a Chancellor Adenauer virtually said the same thing, you know, he never liked Galen. But he believed that he has nothing else. Why he had nothing else? Because Galen was very good at kind of politically eliminating all of his uh, competitors. So just to give an analogy, I saw a caricature in an Arab newspaper kind of a while ago, two, two or three years ago, on Mubarak, the late president of Egypt, when he was still on power, in power. And in this caricature, it was written, Mr. President, he, it could be worse. So they laughed on Mubarak's tendency to kind of tell everybody, yeah, I know you don't like my dictatorship, but anybody who comes after me will be worse. And, and it was the same with Galen. He was Mr. It could be worse. And he, he worked on the fallacy that many people have, which is a called sunken costs. You know, the Americans always said, as they discovered uh, more and more problems with Galen's way of work, but we invested so much in this guy, and he's the only guy around, let's keep him. And that's why he was in power until uh, 1968, notwithstanding his many mistakes and failures. Um, and and you mentioned, you know, he went from working with the Americans to working with the West Germans. How was he integrated into the sort of the West German security services? Was he, and what was his relative position in, in that organization? So there were several uh, German intelligence organizations which were either established uh, by the Americans as kind of mercenary groups, like Gellin and uh, his competitor, Hermann Baun. And later, uh, there were some nascent intelligence organizations established by agencies of the West German government when West Germany was still not independent, between 1949, when West Germany is established, to 1956, when it gains independence. Uh, so uh, there was an organization called Amt Blank, uh, which was kind of tied to the Nasset Defense Ministry, of West Germany. There was another intelligence kind of agency tied to the defense ministry, which was led by a dubious mercenary who belonged previously to German resistance. I speak about him in my first book, Friedrich Wilhelm Heinz, which was called the Friedrich Wilhelm Heinz Dienst. And Galen is fighting in order to eliminate these rivals one by one. He's doing it in very interesting ways. Is convincing the Americans that Bowne is unreliable. It's quite easy because Bowne is a good intelligence professional, by the way, much better than Galen, but he's also very neurotic and very erratic. He kind of inv- invites people to duels and things like that. And also, Galen is convincing the Americans that Bowne is anti Semitic and thus cannot be relied on. Galen understands from a very early moment that playing the anti-Semitism card against his rivals will help him in the new world. 
with kind of the American power is created. And But Gelen still, like many people in Nazi Germany, and we may speak about it later, exaggerates Jewish power in the United States. So he is kind of eliminating in rivals in such way. In the case of Friedrich Wilhelm Heinz, Gelen helps to expose incriminating evidence that uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Heinz wrote slander on Adenauer already in the 1920s and thus kind of eliminating him. So it kind of states as a default choice as the only guy around. <laughs> so, and and yeah, so you, you've, you've hinted at this a couple of times. So this, this was his true genius, right? That, that um, he, he was sort of able to outmaneuver um, his rivals politically rather than sort of be better at that job. Exactly. (laughs) Like Um, many, by the way, people in the intelligence world, intelligence politics matter no less than professionalism. If you are not good at intelligence politics, you may be a great professional, but nobody will listen to you. (laughs) Right. So um, I I don't want to, you know, give away the whole book, but there there, there is one example in the first part of the book that I'd like you to sort of touch on. Um, What is Operation Fireworks? And so, yeah, please. No, no, please go ahead. Go ahead. I'll just stop there. I'll let you go. (laughs) So Operation Fireworks is a operation of the East Germans and the Soviets to destroy the West German networks in East Germany. And the way they are doing it is by using many double agents who lurk inside Galen apparatus and several of his double agents are former Nazis. And they are building on a blind spot that Galen is. Galen was never an ideological Nazi. But he believed that the people who are ideological Nazis will certainly be anti-communists. And many other people in West Germany believe the same. But As I told you before, some former Nazis chose anti-democracy and not anti-communism out of the rubbish heap. And the Soviet Union was very good in recruiting some of its former Nazis, especially SD people who served in Galen's organization, as double agents for several reasons to this relative success. First of all, a... the KGB was way, or I'm saying KGB though before a 40, 54, a different name, just for convenience sake. The KGB had, was way more professional than the Gelenorg. They knew how to play on the feelings of his former Nazis who felt discriminated in West Germany. Plus, they had a incriminating evidence on these people in East German archives, which were not yet published. And for these reasons and other reasons, we were very good in recruiting former Nazis. Why is Edward Gelen at a blind spot? Not only because he believed that former Nazis would be reliable, that's why he recruited them, and experts in fighting communism, he also believed that the most likely spies of the Soviet Union and East Germany will be German leftists. And that was actually not really true. 
So while uh, Geren and other German intelligence agencies, like the uh, Bureau for uh, Protection of the Constitution, kind of like the German West German FBI, followed former leftists, they didn't see that the real danger was with these kind of Nazi agents, which Geren recruited. And when the East Germans and the Soviets collected enough information on Galen's networks in East Germany, they just made a concentrated operation called Operation Fireworks, which you mentioned, to eliminate all of his networks. But they did it in a very sophisticated way. They kind of put the entire guilt on one of his small Nazi fries, who defected to East Germany in order to divert attention from the fact that they had another spy, much more senior, much more dangerous in West German intelligence. A man called Heinz Felfe, who was kind of able to survive Operation Firewalk, was blamed on somebody else, though he actually gave much of the information to the East Germans, and because Felfe was a counterintelligence expert, Operation Fireworks actually increased his importance in the Galen organization. So it actually served two purposes. First of all, to eliminate West German networks in East Germany, then to safeguard and promote the real agent in West German intelligence in order to cause more damage later. Yeah, I mean, this I thought this was a fascinating story and something I wasn't familiar with at all. Um, and I, I think a lot of our listeners, this will be sort of new, um, new to them as well. Um, I want to switch gears on you. I don't want to spend all our time in Europe because, uh, you know, one of the, the great things about this book is it is it is truly global um, and you visit lots of different parts of the world. And so let's sort of shift gears to the the Orient Trading Company. And sort of what neo Nazis were were doing in the in the third world with with gun running, um, you, you mentioned their motivation. So so let's just talk about primarily what they were doing. So first of all, we have to kind of speak about basic conditions after the Second World War. The Second World War, like every big war, and this was the biggest war of them all, many weapons are produced uh, during the war. And every army wants to have large, a large surplus. So, you know, they wouldn't lack weapons. So the war ends up and there are many, 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 many arms of all kinds that nobody knows what to do with them. Many of these arms are in the Eastern Bloc. In Czechoslovakia, especially, there is Omnipol, which is a very important arms factory. There is a lot of German arms which are captured and nobody knows what to do with them and they just need to be sold around. At the same time, this is the age of decolonization. So there are liberation movements in the Third World, like in Algeria, who are interested in weapons and there are huge stock of weapons. But there are several problems. First of all, it's problematic to traffic weapons from the Eastern Bloc to the Western Bloc because of the Cold War. Then it is not really legal to sell weapons to undergrounds for anybody who is not a recognized state and member of the United Nations. So you need people who will either kind of bend the laws or people who don't care about the law altogether. 
In the beginning, the people who dominated the scene of arms trafficking were German merchants who were not necessarily former Nazis and were ready to bend the law but not break it altogether. So what they did, for example, was taking hunting rifles, changing them a little bit and send this, selling them as assault rifles. But there were several problems with these people. First of all, because we were semi-legal, we were more exposed to retaliation. Then, they did not agree to deal with arms which were, you know, very clearly weapons of war, like TNT. Because that you cannot camouflage as hunting rifles or something legitimate. So, uh, these people uh, dominated the scene, but only in the beginning. Then what happened is that the French... Uh, starts to el- start to eliminate one by one the German weapons merchants who are uh, supplying the rebels in Algeria. Because the French, like many colonial powers, believe that their only problem in Algeria is technical. And if they can eliminate the weapons trafficking, they will strangle the FLN and kind of uh, defeat the rebellion. But what they're actually doing, when they are killing the merchants who are semi-legitimate or intimidating them, they bring people who are really reckless and ruthless and are ready to stand the risk. And some of these people are uh, Nazis and neo-Nazis, which are either in Germany or in the Middle East. A person I speak about a lot is, for example, Wilhelm Beisner, were Nazis and neo-Nazis of the kind of adventurous kind that I spoke about before, and these peddlers who are ready to work for anybody. Uh, some neo-Nazis, some old Nazis. For example, one person I speak about a lot in the book is Wilhelm Beisner, who was in Egypt at the time, and as the intelligence officer, who is kind of expert in Arab affairs, also active in Romania, in pogroms against Jews and numerous other crimes. And he was one of the people who were responsible to exterminate the Jews in Palestine uh, if Germany would have occupied this area, along with his boss, Walter Rauf. He was, Ian Rauf were in charge of so-called Einsatzgruppe Egypt. It was supposed to kill the Jews in Egypt and Palestine. So after the war, this Beisner lives in Cairo and he becomes a weapons merchant. He works in Germany with kind of neo-Nazi activists, uh, people called Springer and Remer. Remer is known, Otto Ernst Remer is known to the readers of my first book, The Plots Against Hitler, as the Wehrmacht officer who defeated the coup d'etat, the anti-Nazi coup d'etat, on July 20th, 1944. And after the war, he becomes a neo-Nazi leader and an adventurer. So he has a post-war career. And in Damascus, we are cooperating with more hardcore criminals who are hiding in Syria, especially uh, Franz Rademacher, who was the Jewish affairs expert of the Nazi foreign ministry, and Alois Brunner, who was Eichmann's, Adolf Eichmann's right-hand man and a kind of an expert to extermination of Jews, one of the most abominable Nazi criminals, even more bloodthirsty than Eichmann, if such a thing is ever possible. And so you have three main points. You have people in Cairo, you have people in Damascus, you have people in Germany. And they establish uh, the company which is called in abbreviation Otraco. 
is Orient Trading Company. And uh, this company, what they are actually doing, and we know about their activities from BND documents, German Secret Service documents, which were recently released, they are taking kind of arms from Czechoslovakia, from the Eastern Bloc, and from the Soviet Union, which are either German-captured arms or Soviet arms, which are actually more expensive, they are better. And they smuggle it to the Middle East. We have a, what is called end-use certificates, forged documents which are showing that the shipments are actually for Syria, for example, which is a, a recognized sovereign country and it can buy arms, while the weapons are actually going later to Algeria, mainly through Morocco. And this is their business. They make a lot of money in the 1950s by kind of fulfilling this need. You have many weapons in the Eastern Bloc which someone wants to sell them. You have eager customers in North Africa, but because of the laws of the Cold War, it is actually problematic to shift so the weapons from ask, the Eastern just Bloc to Not North to get too Africa, far down into the weeds about this, but... Nazis are doing. So, who is actually selling them the weapons? Is it is it former soldiers, former officers? Are they getting them from the factories themselves, sort of like a crate here, a crate there? Um, so, so h- how does it work in this way? Many. Many different agents, many different agents. Sometimes it's the factories themselves. For example, Omnipol uh, sells weapons to Otraco directly. Uh, sometimes it's through other agents, like Bulgarian merchants who sell TNT. I have no clue, and I don't think it's impossible to find out where the TNT came from. Uh, some of the agents that sell the weapons are actually Norwegian. I think the weapons all come from the Eastern Bloc, either through corrupted officials or actually through the factories themselves that want to sell weapons. It couldn't have been done without Soviet approval. And I think, and it's a theory, I think I can base it, but I cannot prove it 100%. I think the Soviet Soviet Union had an interest to support the rebels in Algeria, but in the beginning of the Algerian war, it will change later, but in the beginning of the Algerian war, France is also very important for the Soviet Union because it's kind of perceived as a weak spot in the Western alliance. And the Soviets don't want to alienate France too much, but they want to support the rebellion. Helping Otrako, this kind of network of former Nazis doing it, is a very good way to do it, but actually to deny a responsibility, to give for themselves a space for denial. The French fall in the Algerian war, and that's another major argument of the book, is that by eliminating Gotraco, in the book I tell the story how French assassins kind of of kill the Gotraco people one by one or intimidate them, and they're actually destroying bit by bit the organization, actually gives disservice to the French, because what happens is that the Soviet Union intervenes directly. And they could have sabotaged the shipments of Otraco, because who cares? These are illegal people anyway. But they couldn't sabotage Soviet ships. So in order to kind of strangle the FLN and curtail the weapon shipments, what the French actually right. was so, doing you know, I, I kind of see where you're going with this theory, because you know it was certainly the in Soviet interest to destabilize 
the the colonial empires of of Western countries, right? Like, um, so I, I can see how they would be interested in sort of allowing, at least allowing this to go on, right? Um, yeah, but, and of course, if it doesn't work, and if you are no intermediaries, then they would may do it directly. That's why, in a way, the French should have been more restrained. I don't want to give advice to colonial powers, but, you know, <laughs> that's what as historians we do in retrospect. By being more restrained, the French could, for example, sabotage the Otraco shipments without killing the merchants or intimidating them. And then they would have minimized the shipments for the FLN. But as they were panicked, they wanted to use covert ops in the maximal way possible to kill the people, and they did a disservice to themselves, like many powers who are using covert operations in an imprudent way. What I think, and that's kind of another major argument in the book, is that we have to look at the emotional component, you not just kind of rational uh, policy considerations. In the early Cold War, in the 1950s and the 1960s, the word Nazi evoked a lot of emotions. And for the French to know that some of her former enemies are kind of lurking in Algeria and killing their soldiers was too much to bear. And the panic they felt led them to imprudent use of covert operations and finally to a blowback. So let's turn to something else that you say in the book, too, that that I was interested in asking you about. You kind of hinted this idea that a lot of these guys, um, you know, sort of lived under this illusion and self-deceit that they could be sort of like major power players on on a global stage. Um, and you even sort of hint at that they even some of them even believe that there was a chance for like a um, a national socialist like resurgence. Uh, did they? Was this an idea they really took seriously? I think some of them did. Maybe the more the less intelligent and more ideological. Or- office mercenaries. Uh, for example, Otto Ernst Remer, this officer who crashed the coup in 20th of July 44 and became a neo-Nazi leader and an arms merchant, he really believes it, though he was drunk most of the time. You know, these people were usually also alcoholics. So really, it's, you cannot really detach their fantasies from the way they lived. And yes, some of them believed in national socialist resurgence, but I have to qualify it. I said in the beginning of the talk that nobody could actually be a Nazi in the wartime sense in the post-war. Even those who believed in National Socialist resurgence, the regime they imagined was very different than Hitler's regime. Because nobody was stupid. Well, everybody who believed that some kind of Nazi existence in the Cold War was possible was rather stupid. But even these people were sane, after all, couldn't believe that, you know, there could be a Nazi regime which would fight both the Soviet Union and the United States, right? And it had to choose a side in the Cold War. This is a dilemma that wartime Nazis never really encountered. So I'll give an example to the audience, and this is just exclusive for you, because I don't think it appears in the book. I, I have to kind of keep it out for reasons of space. 
In the early 50s, in the 1954 more precisely, this neo-Nazi party, which many of its mercenaries came from, the Social Reich Party, Social Reich Party, of Remer and Springer and Dors, was outlawed in West Germany. It was banned. And for a short while, the entire leadership emigrated to Egypt. And the leadership of the party, who certainly wanted to revive the Nazi regime, met in Cairo. And a CIA agent was in the meeting. So we can actually read what happened there in the classified CIA documents. So the leaders, the two leaders, two main leaders, Remer and Dors, do if it would be a, a new national regime in Germany. And there, was a CIA, there was a CIA person in the meeting, and that's why we know what happened there. So the two leaders of the, this neo-Nazi party, Remer and Dors, debated what the Nazis in Germany, what we call the national forces, should do if there is a war between the Soviet Union and the United States on German soil. So one of the leaders, Dor, said, okay, we have to choose the U.S. This is the lesser evil. Remer said, no, no, we should, should choose the Soviet Union, which is the lesser evil. They started to debate, the debate heats up, and then Remer, the pro-Soviet leader, yells on doors, the pro-American leader, you are a pawn of the Jews and the Jesuits. And everybody who knows the history of the Third Reich knows that such accusations were very common. What amazing is the answer of doors, the pro-American leader. And yells at Remer, yes, I serve the Jesuits and the Jews. Because the last war had proved that the Catholic Church and international Jewry are world powers. Wow. Yeah, the wow. German people <laughs> cannot alienate them again as Hitler had done. Wow. Would you, yeah, would you imagine somebody who calls himself a Nazi saying that... In the warriors, in the pre-war, it was unimaginable. And that's why I'm saying that even when we speak on these futile dreams for Nazi resurgence, even this vision for resurgence was a very different creature than what happened in the uh, uh, war. I, I don't want, it's very important for me to say but I don't mean to exculpate Nazis and neo-Nazis. This should be crystal clear. I think there were despicable people in the war and after the war. I don't think they improved in a moral way or an ethical way in any sense, but reality has changed. And even ideological people could not right. be the well, same. Well said, yeah. Uh, definitely um, no hint uh, that you were sort of excusing <laughs> their behavior or, you know, that they had redeemed themselves in any way. They just, the circumstances had changed um, for them and they, they had to adjust. I must say, Craig, that I had a unique experience writing this book because uh, I used to write on people I like. You know, when I wrote a book on the German resistance, uh, I really liked these people. Of course, I was critical on some of them. I, I had my criticism. I think they had many faults. But all in all, I think they were very positive people, the resistance fighters in the German army who fought Hitler. I still think so. Uh, and when I worked on the book on Japan, many of the Japanese rebels which I studied were quite murderous or 
were not positive figures like the German resistance fighters and still they were idealist in a way, in a kind of a misguided way that you could sympathize with. Here I dealt with people which I thought were complete scums. And kind of writing a huh. book on such yeah, people. Yeah, it's interesting our subjects, you know, that we choose for, for books. I didn't believe how much I would it when um, I You know, began. you like them or you the don't world. like them and you have different emotions either way. Um, but I'm glad you shared that with us because, uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I noticed it's, a defin- it's definitely a different tenor uh, of individuals than your other books. Um, all right, so let's go to Egypt now. Um, let's try to get to the third part of the book because um, I definitely want to talk a little bit about this. So um, after the war... You know, you you demonstrate that German rocket scientists sort of make their way to Egypt, um, and then this sort of gets the Israelis and Mossad involved. And I, I'm sure most of our listeners are at least somewhat familiar with who Mossad is, so n- no reason to go too deep into that. But so, so what what's the story with this? Um, so Egypt was defeated by Israel in 1948 in the Israeli War of Independence, and it was, in a way, defeated again in 1956. And Egypt looked for a third round with Israel, and it wanted to rearm. Nazi Germany was a world power which was destroyed. Whenever a world power is destroyed, there are many experts who are looking for a job. People who were military experts, and there were many people who were scientific, military experts, scientific in the military sense, professional spies, people with skills which are no longer needed in West Germany. Because West Germany is a small, weak state. Of course, Galen, as we said, how many Galens could be, you know, how many people could find a job in this kind of reduced army and intelligence services of West Germany. Many people will stay unemployed. On the other end, just like with the weapons, we spoke about supply and demand after the war. There was a lot of supply of unemployed German experts, and there was a lot of demand in the Third World. Because the Egyptians, Egypt is and was a poor country, has always been a poor country. And it couldn't afford very expensive experts. To hire now American experts would be very expensive, Higher Soviet experts, not as so, but Nasser in the 1950s, the leader of Egypt, did not want to be bound to one of the sides of the Cold War. So getting Soviet experts or American experts is problematic. And he could get experts, German experts, on the cheap and good experts because they belong to a world power. And in Egypt, people tended to actually um, exaggerate German military prowess even more that it was. So it was a good opportunity to get experts on the chip to rearm and prepare the Egyptian army for a second round with Israel, or third round. What was the problem? The problem was that the German experts were not really good. Some of them were conmen, especially the ones who came actually to Syria, more than to Egypt. Some were third grade experts. Why third grade? Because the First grade experts, like Werner von Braun, for example, already went either to the United States or the Soviet Union. And what was left is actually the dregs. All sorts of third rate experts who are part of the teams of the V1 or the V2. And these people went to Egypt. And Israel, in the beginning, did not take it seriously. Many people say that Israel was surprised in 62 
when the Egyptian rocket program was exposed. It is not completely true. Like all strategic surprises, Israel knew all about it earlier. But they didn't take it seriously. Suddenly in 62, July 1962, Revolution Day in Egypt, Nasser, the Egyptian president, is organizing a parade, well-press-covered parade, armed parade, with the new rockets that Egypt has. And to a question of what journalist, what is the range of his rockets, Nasser says they can reach every point south of Beirut. For any of our listeners who are not well familiar with the map of the Middle East, that actually means every point in Israel. And uh, the Mossad then gets a document from the program signed by one of the German scientists, which is known in Israel as the rockets which today it seems at sultry, you know, think about the number of rockets which are found in the Ukraine war. But back then it was a huge number. And Israel is a tiny country. And the Israelis believed, like many other people at the time, remember that's the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, that actually probably these weapons are not conventional. Probably we will have either chemical or biological or nuclear warrants. So the Israelis believe there is going to be a second Holocaust. I said before, and I want to kind of re-emphasize this point, that the word Nazis evoked panic among governments and secret services, and this is true in Israel way more than in France. And uh, Israel now, or especially the head of the Mossad, Israel, gets into a very dangerous mood. At the time, old Nazis were not really taken seriously in Israel. Even Nazi hunting was a very minor activity of the Mossad. Old Nazis were an enemy of the past. But the Egyptians were defined by many Israelis as the new Nazis. The new Nazis that want to exterminate Israel and the Egyptian rhetoric of throwing Israel into the sea seemed very Nazi-like to Israeli Jews, who many of them were Holocaust survivors or at least had families who survived the Holocaust or wars perished in the Holocaust. Now what happened was that in Israeli imagination, and especially in the Mossad imagination, the old German Nazis teamed with the new Egyptian Nazis in a renewed effort for a second Holocaust. And this drives Israeli intelligent decision makers out of their mind. They feel as we are being surprised, though they were not surprised, they knew everything about the program beforehand, but they feel it's something completely new, completely irrationally. And cooler heads in Israel said already at the time, don't be so afraid of this program, especially the rockets don't have navigation systems. So they actually can, cannot really be used. But... Panic was more important than rational calculations. And then the Mossad decides, with Prime Minister Ben-Gurion's approval, to embark an operation, which is named Operation Democles, or Vitamin C, to launch a campaign of terror attacks against the German scientists in Egypt, and then brings a lot of political trouble to Israel. Yeah, this is this was an, an interesting story in the book that I think... Um, a lot of people weren't familiar with, I mean, they're probably familiar with the conflict between Israel and Egypt, a couple conflicts, but uh, this particular episode, not so much. Um, we have crossed the 50 minute threshold, so we will 
I want to get a couple more questions in sort of as conclusionary to your book. Um, can you give our listeners one or two things you would like them to sort of take away from your book after reading it? I think uh, three takeaway points. Some I mentioned, some I didn't. One, one can never be a Nazi in the wartime sense after 1945 because the world has changed. And I think it has a very important a contemporary actual takeaway. Be careful before you say a party X or party Y are the new Nazis and the new fascists. Because the world is so different, then using these wartime definitions doesn't really make sense. That's at least what I believe. And that explains why, if you read the press of the 50s and the 60s, uh, you know, it was written every day that a Nazi resurgence is a matter of time. There are too many old Nazis in the West German establishment. Yeah, it's true. There were many, many old Nazis, but they didn't carry, they didn't lead a Nazi policy because the world was different, not because they were necessarily different. That's one takeaway. Second takeaway, these people, uh, these Nazi mercenaries were not really important people. It is very tempting for a historian to over-exaggerate or to overemphasize the importance of his or her research subjects. So I have a vested interest to tell you and the audience, all the people I studied changed the world. They were very important. No, they were not important. They were delusioned mercenaries. They didn't change anything. They were people of no importance whatsoever. They are interesting. They had interesting stories. You can tell many anecdotes about them. But they were not historically important. What was historically important was the overreaction of governments and secret services to their presence. Because, as I, presence, as I told you, know, the word Nazi evoked very strong emotions. So government secret services in the U.S., in France, in Israel, elsewhere overreacted to the presence of his Nazi mercenaries, and the overreaction had a blowback, and the blowback did change history. So even if people are not important, the reaction to these people by governments can be important. And I think the third uh, takeaway, which many people in the field will agree, I believe, is that the book shows again that covert operations are a very dangerous endeavor, if you are not intertwined with a, a reliable political strategy. France did not have a political strategy to end the Algerian war. Thus, its covert operations were actually more bad than good. They did more damage than bring benefit. Israel, in the beginning, when it began the campaign against the German scientists, didn't have a reliable political strategy how to deal with Germany, Egypt, and the scientists. Only later, as I show in later years, Israel was able to kind of intertwine its covert operation with a manageable political strategy and actually bring the scientists out of Egypt and even improve relations with West Germany. So that's the third and last takeaway. Political covert actions always have to be tied with a reliable political strategy. It's very hard to do. Often we are not tied to a strategy. We actually are replacing a sound strategy. And in such a case, we bring more. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think those are all <clears throat> great points to take away. And I, and I really would highly recommend this book for, to all our listeners. So, And I'll, I'll give you the title again at the end. Um, 
in closing, I, you mentioned it in your introduction, but I always like to ask, um, now that this book is done, um, what ex what are you working on now? So now I'm working on a, a book called Punishment Behind Japanese Military Brutality. And what I'm trying to do is to write a long-range history, a long-durée history of the way the modern Japanese army treated enemy civilians and POWs from the inception of modern Japan in 1868 to the end of the Second World War. And I'm trying to kind of overcome essentialist explanations. You know, the Japanese army was brutal because Japanese culture is brutal. You know, this kind of explanation that historians justly hate. And on the other end, to overcome explanations that give only contingencies. You know, the Japanese were brutal in the Second World War because of all sorts of contingencies of the Second World War. So writing a long-range history, and in a way, I'm trying to unlock the key of why military atrocities happen. Well, so it sounds fascinating. And when it's done, no no pressure. We, we'll ha we'd like to have you back on to talk about it. Um, I want to thank Danny again today for coming on the show and, and, and talking to us about his book. And the title of the book is Fugitives, A History of Nazi Mercenaries During the Cold War. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening today, and we will see you next time.